All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're very pleased to have the last two speakers of this uh, session. And I think it's great that we've had such interactive uh, uh, audience uh, members. So uh, we really look forward to getting questions on the Q&A. Again, if we don't get a chance to answer all of them, I think most of the speakers will try to get back to you individually. Uh, for the next talk, we're going to get a little bit of geographic diversity and uh, have a speaker from uh, New Orleans. Meredith Clement is an associate professor of clinical medicine uh, LS, at LSU. She's gonna share her slides with us in a moment. Uh, she trained an idea at Duke, and she's really been focused on sexually transmitted diseases, which has a long history for excellent research at LSU. And she's focused on prevention of STDs and HIV. So we're excited to have her talk about STI prevention and to tell us what we need to know about doxypep. So Meredith, thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, let me just click on my slides here and get them where I need to be. Okay, um, thank you so much and, and thanks. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you. Uh, the title of my talk is Updates in STI Prevention and Treatment, Doxypep and More. Um, and with that, I will get started. All right, here are my disclosures and the learning objectives. So my hope is that today, upon completion of this activity, that you will be able to describe recent trends in syphilis epidemiology. And I'm gonna talk a bit about congenital syphilis because if you have been watching the news lately or paying attention to what the CDC is putting out in terms of syphilis epidemiology, you're quite aware that the rates of congenital syphilis have skyrocketed in recent years. Um, then I'm gonna talk about management of syphilis in the setting of recent drug shortages and hopefully um, uh, engender some discussion about that, but provide some guidance and uh, on what drugs we're using given the recent shortages of penicillin. And then finally, to talk about some of the risks and benefits of antibiotic prophylaxis uh, for STIs, particularly um, bacterial STIs. So 2021 data has been released by the CDC, kind of the state of the STDs. You may have seen slides like this in the past. Each year, they show us what's going on um, with chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. And while chlamydia has kind of been stable to slightly decreasing since 2017, um, the rates of gonorrhea have increased by 28% since 2017, and remarkably, cases of syphilis have increased since, by 74% since 2017. So 2021 is the most recent year for which we have reliable data. And in 2021, we saw more than 176 cases of syphilis. And that includes more than 2,800 cases of syphilis among newborns. And as many of you know, congenital syphilis can be quite devastating. It can lead to stillbirths, uh, fetal demise. And, and sadly, I think what's, what's um, particularly devastating is it's very preventable. And so um, this is another slide to kind of just give you a picture of the recent trends in syphilis epidemiology. This is looking specifically at primary and secondary syphilis. So those are the infectious stages of, of syphilis um, that are most trackable. And while MSM, men who have sex with men, continue to comprise the majority of cases, what we're seeing is uh, kind of this really dramatic uptake among cisgender women or heterosexual cisgender women. 
Unfortunately, the CDC does not give us great data of, of uh, non-binary and transgender individuals, um, but we do know that among cisgender women, we continue to see significant increases. And so this data uh, from 2020 to 2021, um, this uptick represents a 55% increase um, among heterosexual cisgender women. And so um, with congenital, or I'm sorry, in parallel to that increase or that uptick among cisgender women, what we're seeing is a, a dramatic increase of congenital syphilis. And so this shows you again the 2021 rate. So more than 2,500 cases of congenital syphilis in 2021. Um, what I've seen preliminarily for 2022 is 3,500 cases. So continues to increase, not getting significantly better. Um, and and uh, the data I saw recently, a kind of associated statistic with that, is that over the past decade, um, what we've seen in terms of the rise of congenital syphilis is a 900% increase in the rates of congenital syphilis. Um, so I think we really do have our work to cut out for us in, in terms of um, you know, changing the trajectory here. So here is my first audience response question. So you are seeing a 36-year-old woman. She has HIV infection. She's not on ART. Her CD4 count is low at 152 um, with a percent of, of 10. Her viral load is not suppressed, 53,000. And she has been off ART for the past two years. She comes to you complaining of vulvar warts. So you do a physical exam and you are concerned about condyloma. You don't quite remember, is this condyloma lata versus is acuminatum. It's been a while um, since you've had to think about that, but you do remember that one of these is associated with syphilis. So you order an RPR and it returns at 1 to 128. However, you hear that there is a penicillin shortage. What do you do? And so um, the question is, how would you treat this patient? Uh, 14 days of doxycycline tablets, 7.2 million units of benzathine penicillin G given IM, IV penicillin for 14 days or something else? Uh, so I'll give you just a couple of seconds uh, to answer that question. All right, let's move forward. And yes, yeah, so 14 days of doxycycline tablets. Let me close this. So that is the correct answer. Um, so this is secondary syphilis. In the setting of the bicillin shortage, we are generally giving, giving doxycycline for secondary syphilis, a 14-day course. If the patient had late tertiary syphilis or late latent syphilis, we would give um, uh, 7.2 million units of bicillin. For neurosyphilis, we give IV penicillin for 10 to 14 days. Um, but the right answer here for secondary syphilis is 14 days of doxycycline in the setting of the bicillin shortage. So let's talk about condylomalata for just a second. We don't see this very frequently, um, but it, again, it is a manifestation of secondary syphilis. So on physical exam, it's very hard to distinguish condylomalata from condyloma acuminatum. Um, I will say that the condylomalata are um, typically flatter and more moist, um, but again, almost hard to almost impossible to distinguish without additional information. And luckily, here you had an RPR. Your clinical acumen was high, and you knew to order that. 
if by chance this patient had proceeded with biopsy, what we might have seen on histology is epidermal hyperplasia with superficial neutrophils and this really dense or intense um, dermal mononuclear infiltrate. And we can kind of distinguish that from HPV-related changes on biopsy. What we tend to see is these coelacidic changes. Um, this is just squamous epithelial cells with perinuclear cavitation, and those are what kind of is more frequently seen in condyloma acuminatum. Okay, so now to talk about this, the shortage of benzathine penicillin. Um, so we know that benzathine penicillin is really the treatment of choice for syphilis. It is the only recommended treatment for pregnant persons who are infected or exposed to syphilis. Unfortunately, Pfizer is the only manufacturer of BPG in the United States, and Pfizer had a manufacturing delay from 2016 to 2017. So this is not our first rodeo. I show that just to say that, you know, we dealt with this before. Um, it's unfortunate that we're dealing with it again and we shouldn't have to, um, but it is the situation, the kind of reality we're facing. And so I think it's really important to know what are our alternative treatments in the setting of a benzathine penicillin shortage. Um, so the National Coalition of STD Directors, NCSD, has tried to um, advocate for us as treaters or care, caregivers for um, STI treatment. And so they have urged the White House um, Drug Shortage Task Force to task force to prioritize action to end the ongoing shortage of bicillin LA um, or benzathine penicillin G. Um, as of this moment, uh, we are the kind of expectation is that that shortage will not resolve until the second quarter of 2024. Um, so for now, we do need workarounds. The CDC, if you go to their website, they do offer guidance about what we should be doing in the setting of the BPG shortage. And so first of all, monitor doses very closely and request additional doses when needed. I'm going to show you some data in a second about how those additional doses aren't always um, provided when needed, uh, but we should be at least monitoring them carefully. Um, Secondly, preserve BPG for pregnant persons with syphilis diagnosis or who have been exposed to syphilis. So in uh, in our case, in our clinics in New Orleans, we, for a while, under the BPG shortage, were, were need, this became necessary that we would reserve BPG for pregnant persons only. Currently, we have enough to use um, for all adults, but it, it's kind of a, a changing, constantly evolving situation. And then just a reminder or kind of reemphasize the, the need to stage appropriately to avoid unnecessary use. So we always want to do a very thorough physical exam to maybe look for shankers that have gone unnecessary noticed by the patient, um, in which case we could treat for primary syphilis and avoid um, additional unnecessary doses of benzathine uh, penicillin G. Okay, so here is a survey. I mentioned NCSD, again, as an entity, the National Coalition of STD Directors. Um, so they have sent out surveys uh, in August and then again in November to, to survey clinics nationwide that provide STD care 
um, to ask them how the, the benzathine penicillin shortage has impacted their clinics. And kind of the conclusion is that the bicillin LA shortage is having a widespread and direct impact on sexual health clinics getting the drug they need for patient care. And so um, just to give you a little bit of the data, I looked at the first survey a while ago, and it was already kind of remarkable how many clinics were um, having trouble with this. But the, the numbers have only exacerbated between August and November. So this per, per, continues to be a persistent problem. Um, but right now, 46% of clinics are reporting that they've had attempted to order Bicel in LA, but the drug was not available. 55% um, of clinics have had orders completely unfilled. And then 40% of clinics have had their Bicillin LA orders delayed in the past three months. And then I, I just want to highlight a, a really statistic from this survey that I found pretty remarkable was that 56, only 56% of clinics could get, could say that they were able to get pregnant patients treatment within one week. So that means 44% of clinics are not able to get pregnant women and other persons treatment for syphilis within a week. And we know that there's an urgency there um, when it comes to pregnant persons and treatment of syphilis. Okay, so what are all our alternatives here? And, and I just show this as systematic review. This was something that I published with a couple of colleagues now almost a decade ago. And one of the reasons I wanted to highlight it is because really very little has changed in the past decade re regarding alternatives um, for syphilis treatment other than benzathine penicillin G. And then I also just wanted to talk about some of the grade gradings we gave the alternative treatments um, because we graded using the American Heart Association classification to rate the quality of evidence. And again, not much has changed, although I will give um, some updates uh, regarding some recent studies. So here is a table that we published, and I really just want to highlight here the 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 therapies that received a grade of evidence A were sort of few and far between. So BPG for the treatment of early syphilis, meaning primary and secondary syphilis, and then also BPG for early latent syphilis. And then also azithromycin did receive a grade A treatment, but I think most of us know that we tend or we really don't use it. It's not recommended um, to be used in the United States for treatment of syphilis because macrolide resistance approaches which is 50% here. Um, I will highlight that doxycycline received a grade B. Um, we really tend to use doxycycline based on our many decades of experience with it um, and kind of monitoring clinical outcomes. Um, but but really the 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 data is is mostly retrospective cohort studies um, that support its use. And so I will show you kind of in the recent years, this is more publications that have been published 2016 to 2022. Um, and the uh, kind of punchline here is that this is all reassuring data. All these retrospective studies really kind of offer us reassurance that, that doxycycline is a reliable alternative to benzathine penicillin G. Let me go forward for a second. And then just to kind of show you some newer studies, uh, a couple of these are more um, randomized trials, uh, but small, looking at alternative agents. But I just wanted to highlight them because they've been published in recent years. So the first was a brief report uh, published in CID or Clinical Infectious Diseases 
looking at cefixime for the treatment of early syphilis. And so this was um, 400 milligrams uh, twice a day cefixime versus BPG for 10 days. Uh, I'm sorry, the cefixime was 10 days versus a single dose of BPG. Um, they called this a randomized open-label non-comparative pilot study. It was only 58 participants, and actually in the per-protocol analysis, it was only 30 participants, so that's 15 in each arm. Um, in the per-protocol analysis, the response rate was pretty good, 93% with BPG relative to 87% with cefixime. In the attention-to-treat analysis, they had a fair number of loss to follow up. So um, the results were not, not quite as good. 81% BPG versus 57% with cefixime. And then um, kind of also another relatively recent study, 2015, high dose oral moxicillin plus probenicid highly effective for syphilis in patients with HIV. I mostly highlight this. This is a, a retrospective study without a control group, but really just to highlight the, the overall efficacy of this arm was 95.5%. And this is in all patients who had HIV. Again, they got a, a higher dose of amoxicillin, three grams, and then um, probenicid as well. And so that led um, to this other study that was very recently published in September, looking at high dose amoxicillin, again, three grams with probenicid versus low dose amoxicillin monotherapy for treating syphilis. Again, every all patients in the study or all participants had HIV infection. It was 112 participants who were randomized, so 56% in each arm. Um, kind of typical to these studies, they, they looked to assess the primary outcome, they looked at serological cure, so a four-fold decline in titer um, at 12 months, and the response was 90.6% in the low-dose amoxicillin group versus 94.4% in the combination regimen. So again, very relatively high. I do want to highlight that this, um, both of these studies, the one I just presented and this one, um, both were studies that took place in Japan where they do often use this regimen because they really have poor access to benzathine penicillin G. And this regimen is the amoxicillin plus probenicid regimen is um, in the UK guidelines as an alternative therapy for the treatment of syphilis. Notably in this study, the low-dose regimen did not show non-inferiority to the combination regimen, um, but the authors sort of argued that, that, that both of these um, efficacy rates are quite high, so we should consider it um, as a potential treatment for syphilis. All right, now moving into STI prevention. Um, hot topic here, doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis. So kind of going back to where it all started, this is the Ypergay Olay Open Label Extension Study. Um, the results of this study um, were published by Dr. Molina in Lancet ID in 2018. So the folks who qualified for this study were anybody who had been entered in the Ypergay PrEP study. Um, so that was considered HIV negative, high risk MSM or men who have sex with men who didn't have a contraindication to doxy. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to get on-demand PEP with doxycycline within 72 hours of sexual activity versus no PEP. There were 232 participants and they were followed for about nine months. And here are the results. So there was a, a significant decline in the time to first STI um, uh, with, um, or in the hazard ratio, looking at time to first STI um, when you consider all STIs. So this was gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia. 
Um, when looking at gonorrhea specifically, so France, where this study took place, has a high rate of tetracycline resistance with gonorrhea. Um, so there was actually not a, a notable difference in um, the PEP versus no PEP arms. Um, but for syphilis and particularly for chlamydia, um, there was a, a, a dramatic um, drop in um, rates of both of these STIs. Okay, so now moving into the DOXY-PEP study. Um, so this study uh, was initially presented at age 20, AIDS 2022 by Annie Lutmeyer. Um, this, uh, it was subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. Um, and this study took place in Seattle and San Francisco. Um, the the investigators plan to enroll approximately 780 participants, so half living with HIV, half um, HIV negative on PrEP. It was all men who have sex with men and transgender women. It was two to one randomization, doxypep or no PEP. I will say the study was stopped early, so they didn't quite reach these numbers. Uh, this, the study was stopped early by the DSMB because of a efficacy signal for doxypep. Um, I, kind of the inclusion criteria listed here, they did quarterly three-site gonorrhea and chlamydia testing. So just to kind of go over the outcome for this study, it wasn't your typical STI incidence rate, so number of infections over 100 person years. What they did is looked at the proportion that had an STI per quarter, so with the, at each kind of three-month testing interval. And they also did resistance testing. So they tested samples for gonorrhea, staph aureus, and commensal Neisseria species. Um, and that was done for both arms. So here is the results of the primary endpoint. So looking again at these quarterly visits with at least one STI, First on the left, um, the PrEP arm taking PrEP. So you have um, a, a really pretty dramatic difference in the percent diagnosed with an STI, 10.7% in the doxypep arm versus 32% in the standard of care arm. That's a reduction of about two thirds. Um, and the absolute difference is 21.2 percentage points. And strikingly similar results in the HIV um, arm, the, those folks living with with HIV, 30.5% in the standard of care versus 11.8% in the doxypep arm. So that's 18.7% percentage points difference. Uh, here's the Kaplan-Meier, pretty easily to, easy to visualize the difference between the standard of care groups and the doxypep groups here. And then now to talk about the resistance. So I, I think really kind of at the end of the day, um, the conclusion probably is we're quite limited here to look at resistance because of the very low numbers of samples available. But just to say that um, these are incident, not baseline infections, but within the doxycycline, five cases of resistant or tetracycline resistant gonorrhea um, were noted versus two cases uh, among the control group. And then for doxycycline resistant staph aureus, we saw five cases of incident um, infection in the doxypep group versus two cases in the standard of care group. And so this leads us to a question about doxypep. This is a 24-year-old transgender woman. She's presenting to your sexual health center for STI screening. She reports a recent, recent diagnoses of both chlamydia and gonorrhea. 
So you tell her about the use of doxycycline for STI prevention, and she's very interested. You counsel her on how to take it and then advise her on side effects. Which of the following is correct if she starts doxycycline? And here are your answers. She will be at increased risk of Clostridium difficile or C. diff infection. Uh, she should take the pill with food, particularly dairy. She may experience GI symptoms as a side effect, or D, the medication can cause esophageal injury due to its high pH. And I'll give you just one second to answer those. All right, let's see the results here. And 84% great. So she may experience GI symptoms as a side effect. Um, she won't be at increased risk of C. diff. I'll show you some data about that in a second. Um, she can or maybe should take the pill with food to minimize the GI symptom, GI side effects or the GI symptoms, um, but not take it with dairy because that will interfere with absorption. And then finally, the medication can cause esophageal injury. We know that. We always advise patients to take it with a full glass of water and to remain upright for 30 minutes after they take it. But that's due to its low pH, not its high pH. So I could not fool you guys here. Um, so let's talk about some of the side effects from the doxypep study for just a moment. So nausea was a bit more common, 6.7 versus 3.2%, but, but, but vomiting was not. Uh, diarrhea was also a bit more common, 12.1% versus 9.2%. Abdominal pain was essentially the same in both groups. And then notably, only 2% of study participants in the doxypep arm discontinued because of unacceptable adverse events or just a general prefer preference to stop taking. So overall, I think that's a pretty low um, result or, or percent of dropout kind of uh, reassuring us that in general, doxypep was pretty tolerable. And actually, I'm not showing it here, but the acceptability data was quite high too. Okay, so here's the C. diff data as promised. This is a study that was published earlier this year in OFID. Um, kind of clever, the author authors identified 159,000 cases um, of C. diff infection and almost 800,000 controls. And then they looked at the antibiotics that they had that um, folks had received. And then they ordered the antibiotics. They looked at kind of the odds ratios for likelihood of C. diff development. And they ordered the antibiotics in terms of their relative level of associated risk for C. diff infection. So I apologize that the, this is a little blurry, but really what you can see here was the greatest risk um, for C. diff was clindamycin, not surprisingly, and then the later generation cephalosporins. And if you look down here to the purple, um, what you'll see is really the lowest risk included minocycline and doxycycline. So again, sort of just reassuring in terms of um, C. diff risk with the use of doxypep. All right, now in the last few minutes, we're going to talk about STI prevention um, vaccines. So um, this study, kind of taking it back a little bit, um, was uh, published in The Lancet in 2017. Again, a really clever design here where um, New Zealand had initiated a global campaign um, 
to uh, with the meningitis B vaccine. Um, and so what they did, the, this campaign was initiated in 1984, 1985-ish. Um, and so as that campaign was vaccinated, you can see kind of the left panel here is more and more proportion of the population being vaccinated. And then they waited till this, these, you know, these, these infants had been vaccinated 20 some years later when they became sexually active and started acquiring STIs and they looked at STI rates. And so um, a case was anyone with gonorrhea, a control was anyone with chlamydia. And what they found was that vaccinated folks were much less likely to be cases than controls and showing this adjusted odds ratio of, of 0.69. So a approximately 30% reduction in gonorrhea um, in this vaccinated population. And so kind of that paved the way for additional studies. This is the ANRS Prevenir substudy. I could have mentioned it earlier on DoxyPrep, but this it was a really interesting design, a factorial design, where they looked at DoxyPep together with meningitis B. Um, folks who entered the study were randomized two-to-one doxypep or no pep and one-to-one -one meningitis B vaccine or no vaccine. Um, and then, of course, the outcome was STI incidence. So they, too, this study also kind of confirms the use of doxypep to prevent chlamydia or syphilis infection. It actually kind of surprisingly, um, I'm not showing it here, but there was a reduction in gonorrhea cases as well. Um, what I want to show is that they they initially um, at Croy last year thought that there was a reduction in gonorrhea with the meningitis vaccine compared to no vaccine. Um, but notably, there was a press release in May of this year that the final analysis may modify interim results. And so we really need to stay tuned. We don't we don't think that there's this reliable data that was presented um, and we'll stay tuned for the final results regarding meningitis B vaccine. Notably, the MAGI study is looking at Bexero or the meningitis B vaccine. Um, that is enrolling, I know, here and in several other sites um, around the U.S. And so that's a, a, a second study looking at efficacy of meningitis B vaccine to, present, to prevent Neisseria gonorrhea. Um, so, and then I, I thought this was interesting too, that based on the results of the New Zealand study I showed you, as well as several other observational studies that have since been published, JCVI, which is the advisory group on vaccines in the United States, kingdom, sort of the equivalent of our ACIP, is now suggesting that the use of this vaccine be considered to prevent gonorrhea. Um, and so they're saying to consider this for gay bisexual men who have sex with men who are at increased risk of becoming infected with gonorrhea. And then here you just see some um, criteria to consider. All right. And then the last minute or two, I want to wrap up by talking about doxycycline PEP for the prevention of STIs among cisgender women. Um, so some of you may be aware of this study. The results um, are, I think, unfortunate and sad for many of us in the field, um, but maybe leave some room for additional investigation in the future. But I, I think it's important to think about cisgender women bearing the highest burden of morbidity and mortality from bacterial STIs. I opened the talk thinking about congenital syphilis um, as a result of or, or in association with these really increasing rates of syphilis among cisgender women. And so as some of as, as we may know, 
um, the sequelae of STIs in, in women are notable, PID, chronic pain, infertility, pregnancy complications, and HIV acquisition. And so here, kind of just cutting to the chase here, the time to incident STI was really no different for women in the doxypep versus the standard of care arm. Um, I will say that there was subsequent data presented at the HIV and STI World Congress in July, looking at the adherence to doxycycline PEP in this group. Um, so despite the fact that reported adherence was very high, they did surveys and women reported taking it, um, there was a bit of a disconnect when they looked at a random subset of 50 participants. And I'll just, if you can kind of look at this first bullet, 56% of participants had doxycycline cycling detected at least once, which means 44% of this subset had no doxycycline detected at all throughout this study. Um, so I think there's room for further investigation here. Um, and I think we we all remain a bit hopeful or, or maybe very hopeful um, that future studies show uh, efficacy of doxypeb in cisgender women. Um, I think I'm a bit running really close to time, so I'm just going to wrap up here just showing the CDC does offer some guidance on doxycycline as PEP. We are waiting kind of official full guidelines. They did issue these for public comment in October of 2023. That um, time period to provide comment wrapped up in November. So we're waiting to see final recommendations from the CDC advising on the use of doxycycline as PEP. And then just close, if anybody um, has time to read this um, kind of review article by Grant et al. that was published in CID in 2019. Um, it's a little dated now, of course, with these newer studies, but it, it really kind of just goes over some of the um, risks and benefits and, and kind of considerations um, in rolling out uh, doxypep and, and kind of what it means in terms of, you know, th things we need to consider for the microbiome, side effects, risk compensation, cost, and resistance implications. Um, okay, and with that, I will turn it over uh, for the Q&A session. Great, Mary, thanks for a, a great review. Uh, there are a couple of questions, but let me ask you a question that uh, the last 40 SCI experts I talked to couldn't answer. So I'm interested in what you think. And that is for syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, we have great tests, uh, we have cheap drugs, uh, we know how to prevent it. Why haven't we been able to control this uh, for the last uh, 500 years. Yeah, um, syphilis specifically, the rates just keep climbing. You know, we did reach that nadir in 2000. We were all very excited that maybe we would, I think some people use the E word, eradicate syphilis. Um, and then unfortunately, since then, rates have just gone up and up. I think, you know, I, I will say with with the, as I'm a huge, huge prep advocate and you equals you staunch supporter and talk to all my patients about it. But I, th I think just over the last two decades, we um, have seen, seen with kind of this urge for, you know, more sex positivity and, 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 you know, um, decreased condom use. I think, uh, it just drives STI, um, rates in the direction we, we don't want to see them go. And so now we have these potential prevention options, um, but implementation can be challenging of course, but, you know, I, I think people are always going to have sex. That's the bottom line. And people don't like condoms. That's the other bottom line. All right, Chauvin, there's a related question uh, from uh, a lady, uh, Condi, as to what's driving the increase 
in STIs. So I guess your answer is uh, failure to use condoms and uh, a lot of sex. I, that sounds about right to me. Yeah. All right. Um, there's a comment uh, from uh, Ray Corin about uh, a benzene uh, preparation that's available from Spain. Do you know anything about that or want to make any comments as to whether that's going to impact availability in the United States? Um, so I have not, uh, I've been not been made aware that that's a potential option and I haven't seen anything. I kind of monitor that NCSD website. Um, I haven't seen anything about it there. Um, it doesn't mean it's, it's not coming. We, we do desperately need other manufacturers, right? Because like I showed this, you know, we've dealt with this before having only a single manufacturer Pfizer, um, for bicillin, I think is a big problem. Yeah, well, that's clearly a problem with so many different medications uh, in this country. Um, could you just review quickly again the uh, dose and timing of doxypep? Yeah, doxypep. So it's, yeah, so the way it was studied in the trial was 200 milligram dose um, taken, you know, within 24 to 72 hours, which I think confused people because they thought, well, should we be waiting more than 24 hours? Um, kind of what everybody is going with now is just take it as soon as possible after sex up to 72 hours, but this, but sooner is better and, and really no more than one dose per day. So even if you have someone's having sex multiple times per day, just one dose per day. And what do you think the uptake in clinics around the country is do you think people are adopting this or is this still a slow to uh, uh, become popular? Yeah. So, you know, San Francisco as the earliest adopter is, is um, has great data on tons of patients in their clinic who, I mean, thousands, I think who um, are on doxypep. So I, I really think it's very regional Um in the kind of the West Pacific Northwest, it's certainly happening more frequently. You know, I'm in the South. Um, I have colleagues I've talked to in the South. We're all doing it in some cases and offering it to patients, but I think it's a much slower uptake. I also actually think a lot of it might have to do um, with sort of the education level and savviness of the patients. So in San Francisco, where patients are reading all about this all the time, they come in asking for it. Um, I really have had very few folks come in and ask. It's more me telling them about it. Um, and so I, I think that's it, sort of a shame and, and it's probably a lot is on us, right, to kind of raise awareness that this isn't a strategy. Uh, we do have prep clinics here who are, are you know, and, and within our HIV clinic, we are offering it quite frequently now, but it's been a slower uptake. Is there ever a chance of having a point of care syphilis death? Yeah, so, well, there are two um, rapid tests right now, right? The syphilis health check and the dual combination test that's HIV and syphilis together. Um, the limitations of those are that they're treponemal tests only. So they're really not helpful if someone has a history of syphilis, because if someone has a history, that test will likely, not always, but likely remain um, reactive for the that person's lifetime. And so what needs to happen is a, a send-off RPR or titer. Um, yes, there are lots of diagnostics in the works, um, and they all have 
kind of some limitations and I don't think they are going to be available anytime soon. Um, but that's all our hope. That's really what we need is a cheap, available, accurate, quick test so that we can diagnose and treat at the point of care. Yeah, well, here's actually an interesting uh, uh, question about continuous antibiotics. Do you have any enthusiasm for continuous twice a day doxycycline for very high risk people, especially those who get a lot of bacterial STIs? Yeah, so this is, is what we're calling doxy prep. Um, and it gets a little confusing with HIV prep and PEP and, and now STI prep and PEP. Um, but that has been studied, very small studies in the past. Um, and it, it actually, there are larger clinical trials ongoing about doxyprep. So I, I probably would be more inclined to do doxypep right now um, while awaiting kind of more reliable data on the use of doxyprep. But mm -hmm. certainly I, I think that's been entertained as a good possibility. And what about, uh, are you actually advocating using uh, three doses of benzathine for uh, late latent, especially in people with HIV? Do you actually use up your benzathine for that? Yeah, well, recently we've been using 28 days of doxy, kind of in the setting of the shortage and really preserving those doses um, for pregnant persons. Um, I, there's really the the data on latent syphilis is real late latent syphilis is really terrible right and I don't know that we'll ever get better data because it's so hard to study um but uh what I'll say is that I the the kind of the idea is that um or the Theoretically, the treponemes are dividing more slowly in later stages of disease. So you do or you should you should need a longer duration of treatment. So I do use three doses. I, I kind of want to flip that question for a second, um, because what I didn't talk about in, in my presentation uh, was Jody Dion Odom's data that she presented at, at ID Week. So historically, in the setting of HIV, some people have used three weekly doses for early syphilis, right? And we now know definitively that that is not what we should be doing. The rates of serologic response for an early syphilis in one versus three weekly doses of BPG were exactly equivalent. Um, so, so yeah, so one dose for early, three doses for late. I follow the guidelines for that. Um, and in terms of congenital syphilis, is there any geographic um, uh, uh, area which uh, where most of the cases are they really spread across the United States for congenital syphilis? Yeah, so I think that with the most recent CDC data, it was 29 states who had more than 100 cases. Um, you know, we do we we do tend to have poor um, kind of maternal and infant. Um, infection rates in the South in general or outcomes in the South in general. Um, and I, I know Texas has a number of cases. We we have high rates here. Um, but, you know, it, I guess it's a little bit challenging because I, I know sort of absolute numbers more than, than um, you know, by population. But certainly California has a ton. Um, Florida, you know, uh, I think you could probably see a map on the CDC website specifically um, addressing that. And the last question is from Kevin Carmichael. Uh, he said, what would you do in your practice for cisgender women in doxypep? Regardless of the guidelines, what do you really do? Yeah, so if I, 
Well, first of all, we're trying to get a study started. <laughs> um, but if I have uh, women who really are eager to take it, I think it would be okay to counsel um, that, you know, we don't have great data to support the use of this. However, we don't have a good reason to think it wouldn't work at, in women um, except for this study, but the study, again, had poor adherence rates um, and just have a risk benefit. But but really, I, I think on an individual basis, the risk to that individual in front of you is somebody who really wants Doxypep. I think it, it would be okay to do it. And, and I know in San Francisco, they are doing it. Um, right, well, just to pin you down a little more, even if your patient didn't ask, if you had somebody with high risk, would you recommend it? As I say on TV, it's a yes or no answer. I haven't been so far. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good enough. So. But I, can I just real quick, just the, the data from <laughs> Croy kind of looking at vaginal secretions um, and kind of the, the rates above the MIC, we really, it should work, right? It should. Okay. Well, that, that's a good answer. So, um, okay. Well, Meredith, thanks very much for a uh, very uh, energetic and uh, informative talk. So, okay. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.